This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back, everyone. While the establishment pushes its manufactured Russia scandal, here on The Next Revolution, we like to focus on actual scandals. You know, if you turn on Fox News in prime time, wait for Joe Biden to come up in conversation. The chatter has a way of taking this turn to allegations of corruption. Even as Joe runs for president, the Biden family is profiting from helping the authoritarian Chinese regime oppress its religious minorities. Hashtag Joe China. Spread the word. These allegations have been around for years. This is actually an issue Joe Biden has been dealing with since 2014, but it's come up again because he's now running for president. These are claims that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, has been profiting off of the Biden name, doing business in China and the Ukraine, while his father shaped foreign policy. So here you have Joe Biden who puts his family first and their, and their pockets book first by a billion dollars going to his son, and Donald Trump puts America first. Um, this story has been especially sticky because Joe Biden spent years trying to avoid the appearance of impropriety. Early in his career, he even swore off stocks and bonds to avoid corporate influence. Look, uh, Sean, it's a, it's a case that is crying out to be investigated. If it doesn't get investigated, we just don't have equal justice in this country. Reporter Adam Entis wanted to figure out if the allegations against the Biden family were true. When I was at the Wall Street Journal in uh, 2014, you know, I spent a lot of time reporting on the situation after Russia intervened in Ukraine. He wanted to use his overseas contacts to understand how the vice president's son had even ended up working abroad in the first place. And uh, when Hunter Biden, his business dealings were coming under increasing scrutiny, one of my editors asked me uh, if I would be interested in poking around. And when I, you know, started poking around, I realized, you know, very, very early on that 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 really wasn't necessarily the, the story. In the end... Adam Entis spent months and years looking for corruption. What he found instead was something far more complicated. A family that's fiercely loyal to each other. A son, Hunter, with lifelong addiction issues and a penchant for taking personal risks. And a father, Joe Biden, whose loyalty to his son has always looked like love. But when you stack it next to the Trump family, it might look more like nepotism. I'm Mary Harris. You are listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
You know, you talk you talk about the Biden relationship and the family relationship. And to me, I feel like from the very beginning of Joe Biden taking center stage as a politician in the United States, his family was always there, of course, first in tragedy. I wonder if you can tell a little bit the story of how, how most of us came to know Hunter and Bo, which was their dad being sworn in at their bedside in a hospital. Right. So uh, Joe Biden is elected to the Senate for the first time in 1972. You know, shortly after the election, he's in Washington and he's interviewing people for his staff. Uh, and his uh, wife, young wife up in Delaware, bundles the kids all into the car. And this is, I think, during the period before we all had car seats. Um, Naomi was sitting on the front seat uh, next to Nelia, which is uh, Joe Biden's wife. And in the two in the back seat on kind of a, a bench seat uh, in the back was uh, Hunter sitting next to Bo. Uh, and they got to an intersection and they had a collision with a truck. Hunter remembers being told his whole life that uh, his mother and his sister die instantly at the scene. He and his brother uh, are taken to the hospital and Hunter recalls sitting in that hospital in a bed next to his brother uh, and his brother Bo kind of looking across at him and they're very badly injured at that point. And Bo says to Hunter repeatedly, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, the idea that, that their relationship was forged by that trauma is certainly something that Hunter believes uh, plays a role later in his life in his addiction issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm, str- I'm struck by the fact that when when Joe Biden was being sworn in, I, I looked up an oral history with the guy who swore him in. He mentioned how Joe Biden gave this speech from the hospital where he said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be anything more than a one-term senator. I don't even know if I'm going to serve out the term because I have to do what's best for my family. And it's so striking that you would begin your senatorial career by saying, listen, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here because I have to take care of these kids. Right. And that's where the family comes in. In some ways, the Bidens are a bit like a commune, if you will, or a bit of a clan. They they all pitch in. After the accident, uh, his sister Valerie, uh, Jimmy, his uh, younger brother, uh, they move, move into the house to try to take care of the kids while they're in their re- extensive uh, recovery period and, um, you know, ha- allow Joe to start as a senator. Uh, and he's commuting back and forth between Washington and Wilmington. When it seems to me like this closeness lasted, like when you were interviewing Hunter Biden, you talked a little bit about this, about how Joe Biden would be texting him constantly. Yeah, no, it, you know, it would be we would talk for you know, every night uh, for a period of time for three hours a night. And I'd say uh, about once every hour, uh, he would have to put me on hold because he said his father was calling on the other line. So they're in constant uh, touch with each other. I really related to, uh, frankly, how normal the relationship was, you know. Joe Biden's relationship with his son, Hunter, it is normal. It's just that Joe Biden's life and career isn't. And that makes Hunter Biden a potential liability. Because like we mentioned, Hunter's had these addiction problems for his whole adult life. But also because Hunter's taken business opportunities that raise questions about whether he's trading on his name. You know, some of the criticism I think of Hunter was for his work as a, as a lobbyist after the Clinton administration during the Bush years. Some of that I think was overblown. I mean, he was basically acting as a lobbyist for, for Jesuit universities mainly. 
Uh, he had a couple uh, small healthcare companies uh, that he was representing, uh, but the bulk of his uh, funds were coming from uh, Jesuit universities. And yet he was portrayed as a, you know, an example of the excesses of lobbying in Washington, which I think was uh, not fair to him. Yes, he did work as a lobbyist, but the notion that he was, you know, a rich person as a result, at, at least at that stage, I think is is an overstatement. Uh, he was, you know, really overextended. The, the housing market uh, in uh, the mid-2000s was rising before the crash. You know, he ended up buying a house that he couldn't afford, didn't have money for down payment, and ended up with a massive amount of debt starting in 2006. You know, he didn't have anybody in the family that was in a position to help him with a down payment or anything like that. So he ended up overextending himself, uh, which ended up, you know, increasing the pressure on him to find the next payday. This part is kind of surprising, actually. Like, money's a problem for a Biden? But Adam says, yeah, Joe Biden didn't have any family money to fall back on. So he raised his kids to be comfortable being scrappy. You know, the way Joe Biden would decorate his, he'd buy these grand old houses that were falling apart. And then the whole family would chip in to do the renovations. Uh, And uh, where would he buy the furniture? He'd go to Goodwill with the two boys and they'd find old couches and bring them back and decorate the house. I was fascinated Mm -hmm. with that, with that part of of their childhood, which was largely spent trying to keep these old houses from completely falling apart. They, they lived in this very large house uh, for a period of time after the accident. It was uh, so large that it was very expensive to heat in the winter. Uh, and so Joe Biden, in, uh, when winter was coming, would get drywall, and he'd put drywall up to close off one of the wings of the house so that the heating bill wouldn't be excessive. Um, so every winter and every spring, he'd be putting up or taking down this drywall that would block off a whole wing of the house just so he could not deal with the cost of uh, cost of heating the place. So, sure, Hunter Biden was the son of a U.S. senator, but that was his primary currency, that in his own good sense, which sometimes wasn't so good. You know, Hunter made some decisions that were uh, maybe not the smartest decisions. Uh, you know, he purchased a house he couldn't afford and ended up with massive debts. Uh, he ended up putting his three daughters in the most one of the most expensive schools in Washington, which costs about today about $40,000 a year per child. So he had to make a lot of money. And, you know, uh, it, he found it difficult, he told me, to find places to make money that wouldn't raise eyebrows at some point because of what his father was doing. At this point, Hunter's dad is positioning himself to be the vice president, serving the Obama administration, and taking a much more active role in policy than most vice presidents. Uh, his father was very, was very much taking the lead in terms of European affairs. He was uh, taking the lead in, in dealing with the, chi- with the Chinese government. He was, played a key role in Africa during that period. He was uh, in charge of many domestic uh, programs following the economic crisis. I can understand to a certain extent, why it was hard for him to find a place to operate. Yeah, what did he decide to do? Because I think we need to to make that really clear. It sounds like around 2008, he was in the lobbying world. He decided to get out of that. What did he jump to instead? When his father becomes the vice presidential nominee, Hunter uh, starts a global consulting business, and he's advising companies in the United States and abroad on how to expand in the U.S. 
uh, market and in other foreign markets. It's through that business that he he takes a seat on the board. It's an unpaid seat initially on a fund in China that is supposed to take capital, Chinese capital and potentially uh, foreign capital, and invest it in companies outside of China. That was uh, a big play that he pursued starting in 2013 when his father's vice president and very much involved in uh, working on U.S. policy towards China. And then in 2014, when his father becomes increasingly involved in responding to Russia's intervention in Ukraine, uh, Hunter is offered and accepts a seat uh, on the board of Burisma, which is a, a Ukrainian gas company. That is a paid, a paid position uh, and one that's uh, rather well paid. And he basically agrees to take this position on this uh, energy company because he says uh, he believed that the company's uh, health was critical to Ukraine's sovereignty and independence from Russia. But critics within the Obama administration were grumbling, all of it behind the scenes, none of it public, that, you know, Hunter, by taking the seat on the board, was undermining his father's message to the Ukrainian government that they needed to combat corruption. Publicly, uh, the State Department spokesperson and the White House spokespeople were defending Hunter's decision and said that when he took that seat, he was acting as a private individual and they were not concerned about potential conflicts of interest. Privately, uh, I spoke to officials and they were said that they were concerned, but it wasn't that they were concerned about you know, actual conflicts of interest. They were concerned about the optics. And having Hunter take this seat in this uh, Ukrainian company's board was contradicting uh, his father's message to the Ukrainians, which was nepotism is bad, uh, cronyism is bad. It, it smacked of Hunter, you know, benefiting from his last name. Even if, you know, even if there wasn't any, um, uh, and there is no evidence that I found uh, that Hunter in any way discussed these matters with his father. In fact, he wouldn't discuss his clients. That was sort of the unwritten rule between Hunter and his father. Yeah, it's interesting. Listening to you talk, it sounds Trumpian a little bit. I mean, there's differences, obviously. No, I think, uh, you know, some of the people making the accusations against Hunter, I, I agree. Like, I think the decision to go with Burisma in particular, the Ukrainian company, that, that was a dubious choice given his father's activities in Ukraine. But the person who's, you know, calling for an FBI and Justice Department investigation is Rudy Giuliani. Now, Rudy Giuliani has used his role as Trump's personal lawyer to advance his own business interests. So, uh, you know, I think there is a certain amount of hypocrisy here, you know, for Trump to criticize Hunter or to make these unfounded allegations that Joe Biden went soft on China because Hunter is an investor in a fund in China. This is not based on fact. This is a, a borderline smear. Uh, I, you know, there's been no evidence that's been produced that I've seen that stands up. In the case of Rudy, you know, he went out and sought access to Ukrainian former prosecutors who made some of these allegations. And as far as I can tell, they've they've either those allegations have either been dropped by the people who made them that Rudy cited, or uh, they've been discredited. Uh, that these allegations uh, have been discredited, and some of the people that. Uh, Rudy was initially uh, citing have now publicly said that they see no evidence of any wrongdoing. 
this is a useful uh, way for um, Trump uh, and those that support him to try to make the case that, you know, Biden and his family are not that different uh, from the Trumps and the criticism that involves the Trump and the Trump family and how they've not separated uh, uh, government uh, with their private businesses. I think that's a, personally based on my research on this piece. I think that is a stretch to make, but I think the criticism is warranted in some cases uh, about Hunter's choices. And at the same time, Hunter was making these questionable choices. He was struggling to keep his addictions under control. You know, I went through your article. I counted up six or seven different rehab centers he'd been to over the years. Crossroads and a place in Tijuana that provided treatment for him, a yoga retreat, all kinds of places. He was also kicked out of the Navy for testing positive for cocaine. How has that influenced his decision making here? That's a good question. And and I, I don't really know to what extent some of the decisions he was making, you know, were were influenced by his addiction. I mean, what what was very clear he realizes that he has a problem in the early 2000s when he's working as a lobbyist. Um, and he goes to his first treatment center in Antigua. You know, his brother is the one who takes him to the airport, and that's in 2003. You can tell that he's trying very, very hard to try to get a grip on this, and he just cannot do it. You've talked about Bo and his role in Hunter's life and how he was always the one driving him to the airport, to the next rehab, and he was always the one coming in and sort of rescuing him when he needed rescuing, when he'd gone a little bit too far. And of course, Bo died from a brain tumor. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how Bo's death rippled out both to Hunter and to Joe Biden. When Bo was alive... Joe Biden would talk about him frequently uh, from the podium whenever he was giving speeches, not every time, but often he would hold out Bo as, you know, the best person he had ever known. And some of the Biden aides who I spoke to uh, thought that this was, uh, while great for Bo, uh, they thought it would be hard uh, for Hunter. And, you know, uh, one one person I spoke to uh, thought it was a form of child abuse, that it must be really hard for Hunter to hear this uh, from his dad, always about Bo. And uh, I asked Hunter about that, and he said that he was never jealous and never felt that sense of jealousy and that he agreed with his father's sentiment that, you know, his brother was the best person that he also knew. Uh, and you can see, actually, if you look closely at the way Bo supported Hunter emotionally, it's very clear that Bo was his lifeline. From childhood uh, forward, Bo was the one that was stepping in to save Hunter when he had was getting into a fight or when he was having his meltdown after getting kicked out of the Navy. It's always Bo coming to the rescue. When Bo died, Hunter's life unraveled. His marriage fell apart. He started drinking again. He moved out, rented his own apartment, stopped doing the things he cared about. A yoga instructor actually came to check on him, but Hunter couldn't open the door for anyone. He was too embarrassed. Then his dad came by. And Joe Biden goes and literally knocks on his son's door and, and says to him, you know, um, this is not the exact quote, um, you know, I need you. Uh, what is it going to take to get you better? And Hunter responds by saying, I, I know what I need to do. Uh, and uh, the next day, according to Hunter, he gets on a plane, flies back out to California and enrolls in another one of these, you know, yoga retreats 
you know, that has helped him in the past uh, get himself sober. What's so striking about that story is that it really shows the real love and dedication between Joe Biden and his son, and also this kind of melancholy that's at the heart of their relationship. You know, I think um, a lot of families have somebody in the family that has gone through depression or addiction issues. In some ways, I I find the Hunter stories in some ways banal. The difference is, is that he's living his life under a microscope. The things that befall Hunter uh, have implications for his father. Hunter had to go through this in secret. Hmm. You know, he doesn't have the anonymity that most other drunks have. But in some ways, I mean, your article asks whether Hunter will somehow negatively impact his dad's campaign. But I feel like his story of addiction, you've said it yourself, it's banal almost, but certainly relatable for so many people. I feel like many families could see themselves in Hunter's story. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, Hunter has had so many chances and has done so many different things that, as you've said, are sort of questionable. Even if there's no fire there, there's certainly smoke. And and that's more the thing where I think it could be a problem for the campaign. I think you're right. I mean, this is a guy who decided not to invest in stocks and bonds right from the beginning in 1972 because he was trying to avoid the appearance of conflicts of interest. And here his son has created uh, appearance of conflict of interest because of his business choices. You sound quite empathetic to Hunter and the Biden family here. I mean, you said you think the criticism is overblown. I wonder where that comes from. I wonder, you know, in your reporting, kind of how, how you reached that place. You know, I, I think it's very easy to look at a series of events and try to make, uh, make it look like there are connections between the events when you actually don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very easy to do that. Um, you know, I think there's some justified criticism of some of the coverage related to the uh, Trump, you know, Trump and his Russia contacts, because you see a series of events and then uh, you naturally fill in these gaps with the worst assumptions. Uh, and, you know, uh, I try as a reporter, you know, my best not to do that. Adam Entis, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Great to be here. Adam Entis is a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. Tell me what you thought about the show. Go find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. And one more thing, if you're looking for something to listen to right this second, hop on over to the Gists feed. Today, Mike Pesca is going to talk to the author of a new book called The Volunteer. It's all about one of the first resistance fighters against Germany in World War II. Totally fascinating. Go check it out. Thanks for listening and talk to you tomorrow.